Anyway. Okay, that's great. And just so you know, we're doing something new with season two where I'm going to just record like a little blurb at the beginning okay. that'll sort of intro the episode before I was like, welcome back to the show. And it just sounded so dumb. <laughs> okay. And I was like, I hate this. So. <laughs> okay. Nisha Satyanathan graduated from Weber State University with a Bachelor of Science in Criminal Justice. She then went on to graduate from the University of Utah with a Master of Social Work. She is a licensed clinical social worker. Nisha has experience working with OCD, anxiety disorders, depression, troubled youth, trauma, couples, families, and adolescents. Nisha works at her own private practice in Utah and loves bringing her golden doodle named Sunny with her to work. She shares with us her expertise on this episode of Mental Illness and Me. Nisha, will you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Yes. So I, let's see, I was born in India and I was adopted when I was a toddler and I have struggled with mental illness probably since about the age of 14. Um, so very familiar, unfortunately, with it all. Um, but let's see, I'm married. Um and I have, I don't have any children, but I have fur children. So I have three golden doodles and yes, three? it's ridiculous. Um, but we have lots of fun <laughs> and go on lots of hikes and just, I, I love them. They're so fun. <laughs> Are they related to each other? Yes. So the youngest one is the, the daughter of the mom and dad that we have. So we have um, a girl and a boy and then they had puppies last year. And that was a fun adventure. And then um, we kept one because my husband wanted to keep one. That is so cool. That is so special. You have a whole yes. family of dogs. Yes, I just hung up their stockings, which I know is disgusting because it's not Christmas yet. But they are <laughs> like my children. Oh, I thought you were going to say it's disgusting because it was no, dog. No, and you- no, 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 no. <laughs> just because it's not even Christmas yet. <laughs> <laughs> that cracks me up. I love it. So um, what what kind of interests do you have outside of um, obviously your passion for mental health? Yeah. So, I mean, I like to yeah go on walks. I go on walks every day or hikes with my dogs. Um, I like spending time with family and friends. I love serving people. Um, so I honestly do that a lot. I also love just creating relationships and strengthening relationships with people around me or like meeting new people. Um I like learning how to cook Indian food or just cooking when I have the time um, and gardening and yeah, just living life. Oh, I love it. So tell me a little bit about your background with um, your career with mental health. You know what? I was going to be actually be a police officer. <laughs> Growing up, I, I just had an uncle who's a police officer and I really looked up to him. And like, I've always loved anything to do with like crime and I still do. Um, and so I, I started working in, in the corrections field, actually, um, got my bachelor's in criminal justice, which I think scared my parents, but did it anyways, <laughs> went and worked corrections for a year. And I was like, you know what? Like, I just, I'm not huge. Like taking people down all the time. Isn't my forte. Um, I didn't feel like I was really helping people because I was just holding them. And so then I went a different direction. I worked a lot of different places like private counseling centers, um, drug and alcohol treatment, residential treatment center, um, lots of different places. Um, And then I went and got my master's in social work at the U. Um, 
decide, you know, went, did, went the route of social work just because there are a lot of options and a lot of things you can do within social work. Um, but found myself doing therapy and I really love doing therapy. Um, it's, it's awesome. I really love it. So that's kind of my background a little bit. That is so cool. I had no idea about your interest in criminal justice. That is super cool. When you said you worked in corrections, uh, what type of work did you do? So I did juvenile corrections. So I worked at like the juvenile detention center. Um, Just like security kind of thing? Yeah, like, yeah. (laughs) A youth counselor, but you pretty much did security too. Um, Wow. yeah. Yeah, you have to be trained and all that. Well, so what made you decide to do OCD therapy specifically? Because is that your specialization? Is that what you would consider your specialization? Yeah. So I'm really focusing right now on, I mean, a couple different things, but OCD, you know, therapy, anxiety disorders. I'm also doing trauma work right now with EMDR therapy. Um, And then also I'm starting to dabble in a little bit of adoption work, um, just especially helping adults who have, you know, were adopted as children just because there aren't a lot of resources for adults. Because you were adopted. Yes. And so you have very specific experience with that. Yes. I love how you chose to specialize in things that you understand. Yeah, I think it's so helpful, you know, um, just to connect with people. And I just understand like just some of the you know, you know, minute details and things that I think maybe uh, people wouldn't get other places. That That is really, really cool. So before I talk a little bit more about OCD, because that's, that's of specific interest to me, but the a lot of people who've come on our podcast have talked about EMDR, and I've heard a lot about it. Um, and I don't know a lot about it. And those who tell me about it are experiencing it for themselves, but they aren't the professionals in the field. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about what EMDR is and what it is used to help with in mental health? Yes. Okay. So it's usually, so it's EMDR stands for eye movement um, desensitization reprocessing. So what it is, is the way that it was like created was Um, by a lady who noticed that she was going on her daily walks and she noticed when she was walking down the sidewalk and she was looking from side to side on the sidewalk that she would start thinking about things differently, which is so cool. And I love that it was just like created by somebody doing something so simple as just going on a walk, you know? Um, but what it is, is it's really replicating what your, what your brain does when you're sleeping, like in REM sleep. So if you've ever watched like a baby dream before or something, their eyes will move back and forth. And, you know, like it's hard for us to see ourselves doing that because we're asleep. Right. Um, right. But when your eyes are moving back and forth during REM sleep, you, your brain is reprocessing. Right. Which also like results in dreams. Um, and I know sometimes we have funky dreams and we're like, what in the world? But when we do EMDR therapy, it's very focused. Um, and it's, it's a bit of a process to set it up. Um, you do, you know, there's quite a few steps that you do before you start doing what we call the bilateral stimulation. So a therapist can, um, you can follow their, their fingers with your eyes. They can tap on your knees. You can follow a light back and forth just from side to side. My favorite method, um, for the bilateral stimulation is to have them hold what we call EMDR tappers. And they're just these buzzers that you hold one in each hand. 
Um, and it's just really nice because it's easy for the therapist to turn off and on. Um, and it's easy for the client because they don't have to pay attention to anything. All they have to do is just sit there. Um, but I really love it because it helps people think about, about things differently. So it's mostly used for trauma. Um, and if you think about, you know, I think everybody's probably been through something, you know, that has bothered them or made them believe something about themselves or, uh, seen something differently with life about life. Um, and so it just helps you to rethink about things differently. And it's, I see amazing results with it. Oh, that is amazing. I'm so glad that I asked you that question because it's something that I think is a bit of a buzzword. Yes. People have heard of it, but they don't exactly know what it is. Yeah. And what kinds of changes have you noticed in people after they've done this type of therapy? Yeah. So amazing changes. So I've had people, you know, report like just feeling physically stronger, like, and this might be kind of funny, but like even people's like bladders feeling stronger because after trauma, you know, just depending on the trauma, sometimes it, it really affects the body. Um, so even just physical changes, um, people feeling more confident in themselves or having like even compassion for like, like an abuser, you know, being able to see, you know, something just differently and, and then being able to move forward and not worry about it so much or have it, you know, trigger them so much. And just even outside of like the topics that we're reprocessing, um, I've noticed clients being able to think differently about other things that are disturbing or problematic for them. That is absolutely fascinating. And what you said about just the physical toll that yes. stress and anxiety takes on a body, like even your bladder. I, wow. I had never, never, ever considered that, but what a relief and what a huge uh, burden taken off the shoulders of the person who has been suffering for so long. Yes. Yeah. It's amazing therapy. I really love it. Did you have to do a special certification to do EMDR or was it part of your master's training? Um, so it is a specialty for sure. Um, whoever, you know, is doing EMDR therapy has gone to special trainings for it. They're like a whole full weekend long, like several of them. Um, and the cool part about the training is that you get to practice EMDR in the training and then you get to practice having it done on you. Um, and so you know what it feels like and what's going on. And that, that kind of ties back into what we were talking about before, just how important it is to have personal perspective and experience in the areas where you are teaching and leading because then it is so much easier to connect with those that you're helping which yes. I think is really cool yes so jumping for a minute to OCD therapy what would you say are some common misconceptions that even professionals who work as uh, therapists uh, have about OCD yeah so I think the biggest thing is that reassurance works. And so by that, I mean, like I see people who have been to other therapists, right. And other professionals or whoever, or even just family members, right. Will constantly for years, you know, tell them, Oh, it's fine. Everything's fine. You're going to be fine. Or, you know, just, you're no, you're not going to get sick. No, you're not going to die. No, you're not going to go to prison. You know, whatever it is, whatever it's about. Um, you know, I, I see that a lot that clients come to me 
and they've been fed reassurance for years. And that makes OCD worse. And I think reassurance comes from a place of love and care because we want to fix things for people who we care about. Right. That's something that I have personal experience with. And I think about it a lot now. Once you become aware that you are seeking reassurance, you start to notice it everywhere. Yes. <laughs> and you, you start to realize how, how often you have been um, seeking it and depending on it. And for me, I'm a new stepmom and a new wife and realizing that I am constantly craving reassurance that I'm doing a good job. And when you have teenage boys, they're not going to give no. you the kind of reassurance that your mom will give you. Right. Right. My mom will tell me, you know, that I'm wonderful and, and doing a great job, but you're, you know, teenage boys, that's not how they express their appreciation. Right. Right. They express it in different ways. And so I think it was really valuable for me to have done OCD therapy where I was trying to learn how to not be dependent upon that reassurance because it sort of has helped to prepare me for now. And it's still hard, but I at least recognize that that is what I'm seeking and that's what I'm looking for and that I need to find other ways to be <laughs> content with what it is that I'm doing. You know? Right. And I think, I think it's important to know. And I always like tell family members is especially parents um, you know, in sessions that reassurance is normal for kids, right? Like, you know, if you've got a kindergartner, for example, like walking into kindergarten for the first time, you're going to reassure them and say, you know, I'm going to be right here when you get out, you know, I'm going to be right here waiting for you when you're done with class. Um, and, and I think that's what is so hard, especially for parents, you know, when you've got a child with OCD or anxiety or, you know, even just partners or whoever, um, and that's why I think a lot of professionals fall into this trap is because, you know, it, it is acceptable, right? And it is normal and healthy to give kids reassurance. But when you've got a kid that has OCD and anxiety or an adult, it actually just makes things stickier. And so I always tell, you know, family members, be gentle and kind to yourself because you probably didn't know. But once you know, um, you got to do something different, right? And reassurance is usually telling the person whatever they're worried about, because they'll usually tell you, like, I'm worried about this or that. You know, it's it's telling them that it's going to be okay or that they're going to be fine, whatever it is they're worried about. So it's very focused. Right. I, I need to tell that what you just said to my mom about how it's really normal for parents to want to reassure their kids because my mom felt awful once she realized, oh, wait, I've been reassuring you. I've been telling you, no, you're, you are talented and wonderful on those days that I would come to her and say, well, I'm a failure. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and she said, I, you know, I feel horrible that I, that I made it worse for you. And I'm like, mom, there is absolutely no way you could have known that. Yeah. It's, a, it's a parent's natural inclination to want to help their child have um, a healthy self-esteem and, and to believe in themselves. And it's just, it's a different beast when it comes to somebody who has OCD. Exactly. Yeah. And so I'm, yeah, there's no way that parents could know because I mean, I would say a parent who is giving reassurance, you know, that means they're a good parent. They care. They're active. They're involved, you know? Exactly. Um, but when you've got, yeah, OCD or an anxiety disorder in the picture, um, which means, you know, if it's a, a disorder, that means it's really starting to impede on life. Um, then, then you got to do something different. 
Right. That, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that one of the main things that surprised me as I started learning more about OCD is just how many different kinds of OCD there are. Can you, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that that's one of the most common misconceptions for the general population about what OCD is. Like, how would you define it and what does it entail? Yeah. So you have to have two things to have OCD. And I think a lot of time in the media, we think, you know, we see even, and I even had someone like, saw someone like post a joke about it. I'm like, okay, it's not funny, but just like, it's about symmetry or cleaning or germs or organizing, you know, and it is so much more than that. So to have OCD, you have to have two, there's two components. There's obsessions. So the things that you worry about, um, and they're usually weird things. Like they're not things that your average Joe is probably thinking about, right? Like, so for example, I'll give you a personal example. I was letting my dog out one night and it was the middle of the night and he had to go out. And so I was letting him out and I had my side door open like on my house and just waiting for him, enjoying the cool breeze in my pajamas. Right. And then I just had this thought that my neighbor was going to walk outside and shoot me. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> like It's the middle of the night. And I love my neighbors. <laughs> like, And it was just odd. It was just right. odd, you know? Um, and so there can be a lot of different uh, themes that those obsessions can come in. So I mean, there's pedophile OCD, like thinking that you're a pedophile and you're going to like, you know, sexually harm a child. There's, you know, the the regular contamination, uh, you know, that I'm going to die or I'm I think sometimes people don't know that with contamination, sometimes people are worried that they're going to spread it and that they're going to kill other people. So then that leads into like harm OCD that people are going to worried about hurting themselves or others. Another one that is really tricky that I actually saw someone today with is um, when people have suicidal, intrusive suicidal thoughts. Um, So that's, I think that's an interesting one. And that's when people have suicidal thoughts that they don't want. And that's the difference between like OCD ones and real ones, like ones that, that people actually like, no, I do want to go die. Right. But sometimes people have intrusive suicidal thoughts that make them think they want to go kill themselves, but they really don't. Oh, my gosh. Now that you say that, being someone who who understands intrusive thoughts a little bit because I've dealt with them my whole life. uh, That's yeah, it's it's bad. (laughs) It's really hard. Yeah, that's really what is the? This is just out of curiosity. When, When you have the kind of OCD, when you're constantly afraid of somebody dying or of you dying. Is that considered harm OCD or is harm OCD more when you're worried about hurting um, other people? I would say that could be considered harm OCD. Okay. I kind of wondered that because for me, having started out with um, scrupulosity, you know, moral OCD and then, or with that's based on morality, it's it, my, in my, since the COVID started, <laughs> it has, and since I got married, it has kind of shifted into this harm OCD place where I'm constantly worrying about people dying or myself dying and it's it's just so fascinating to see how OCD it's not it doesn't stick with one thing necessarily for your whole life it can totally morph and change and become into different shapes right yeah it totally does the other part of OCD you know that's part of OCD is the compulsion part and that's the thing that you're doing to try to to push away whatever you're afraid of happening right so either things that you avoid or things that you do um so like 
you know, if you're worried about being a pedophile, for example, maybe you'll avoid uh, driving by the school when school gets out. Right. Or maybe you'll keep your window shut so you don't see kids walking by um, or you won't walk near playgrounds because you don't want to be close to kids or you won't go into McDonald's. Right. You'll always just go through the drive through. Um, but I think there's a part of compulsions that people don't know about that I have never personally heard in the media or on TV or whatever, which is the mental compulsions. And that's when people give themselves reassurance or mentally review things or answer what if questions or try to figure out what if the answer to what if questions, stuff like that. And those are hard. So to, to just to summarize, you said that to have OCD, you have to have two things. And one is the intrusive thoughts about something irrational. They're usually pretty extreme too. Um, like the example, like of my, of like my neighbor just shooting me like what <laughs> like it's kind of extreme right right um so you have to have that part um and it could be remember about a lot of different things and it can also morph like you said it can it can just adjust into a lot of different fears so like somebody for example could be worried that they are a pedophile and then they could the next day or even the next hour could worry that they that they want to be a pedophile you know it can just slightly adjust right. Um, and then the other part is the compulsions, right? So just the the things that you do to really keep yourself, try to keep yourself safe. So what we talked a little bit about misconceptions that professionals in psychology even have about OCD, but what do you wish that people generally understood better about OCD after having worked for a few years with clients that are dealing with it? Yeah. So, I mean, I really wish people knew that it was not funny. It's not funny to make jokes about OCD. Like it is, it is a really painful thing to have. It's not, it's not a cute little quirk, you know, and it's, it can come in a lot of different forms. Um, And so I think that's really important. I also think it's really important for people to know that people that have OCD, like they also have lives. Like it's not just OCD. That's not just who they are. Like they are people, right? They, they have hobbies, they right. have likes, they have dislikes. Like that's not the only thing they're thinking about. Like, and maybe some people who are like really se- have severe OCD, maybe that's the majority of what they're thinking about. But like for me, for example, like I wouldn't want someone to think that I'm just OCD. Like that's all I have in my life. Like, no, I have way more. Like I have a beautiful life and I have lots of things, you know, that I love and passions and, and people that I love and all these things. And I also deal with OCD, you know, that there's much more to us. Right. Uh, You mentioned people that have severe OCD. How likely do you think it is for somebody with severe OCD to be able to overcome their um, compulsions to the point that they can have a functional normal life. I have seen a lot of extremely severe clients and I completely believe that it's, 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 you can overcome it. Like you, not, like not, it's not going to go away, but you can get to a, into a manageable, right. manageable spot where you can have a beautiful life. And like, that's really one reason why I love treating OCD is because like when I was working community mental health and just other, other places, sometimes I felt like I was slapping on band-aids and like that meaning like I wasn't really truly helping people change. I was just giving them temporary fixes and I hated that. Um, you know, but with yeah. exposure and response prevention therapy, 
you know, and other things we can do for, to treat OCD, it, you can get back to life. And I mean, you've got to stay on top of it. I always tell people you have to stay on top of it. You know, it's, it's not something that you can just go do therapy for, for, you know, a few months or whatever, and then just be done. You have to accept that you're always going to have it, you know, but like, there's lots of things that we accept in life, you know, like, like when it comes to risk or just things that are a pain in the butt, like, you know, and we keep doing it and we keep going, like it is possible. That is such a hopeful statement. And I, I hope that somebody who needs to hear that will, I've had people approach me since I started talking about mental illness a little bit more and have told me about family members who just are paralyzed by their disorder. And I, I've known people personally who are, who are basically homebound and their, their lives are contained within their own mind basically. And it's such a hopeful thing to know that there is a way and there is help out there, but you really do have to work hard for it. A good way to think about OCD is I think everybody knows what like a computer desktop looks like. Right. And right. like usually on someone's right. desktop, there's a bunch of files, like file folders, like the blue file folders. Right. And then yes. within the files, there can be more yes. files and there could be zipped files and files with passwords on them. Right. And that's like our brain that there's a lot of different files or memories or traumas or just different things, or there's a genetics file or whatever. And OCD has access to all of them. And we don't get to decide which ones it has access to. It just has access to everything. It has all the passwords. It has everything. And I I really feel like it explains OCD well because OCD can grab little bits of information and things that we care about because it knows what we care about, right? And then grab different things and then twist it and then serve it to us. Yes. such a jerk. (laughs) But it is so, (laughs) I, I do want people to know that you can definitely get back to living life, even if you are homebound. Like I have seen and helped people who are homebound get out of it. And I think it's good to know that, you know, the golden thread for, for treatment is medication and therapy. You know, it's not one or the other, you know, and if you are dealing with really severe or even just severe, you know, OCD, give medications a look, but know that medications isn't going to be the one and only answer. It's not a magic It's not a magic pill, right? But it will get you to a point where it's easier to do the therapy, you know, and helps it stick better. And, you know, if we, I don't know, I just sometimes think if we have the help, why not? Like, we don't need to put ourselves through more torture. (laughs) Well, and I, I mean, I've obviously, because I'm hosting the podcast, I've talked a lot about my own experiences, but I really do believe in this principle of being able to change and heal and have a better quality of life just from personal experience. And I, you know, I really truly believe that my ability to finally have a sustainable long-term relationship to get married was thanks to doing some pretty intense OCD therapy where I had to really dive into those places and, and do some exposure response prevention. And I, I really believe that that is why I was able to have that. And it has greatly increased the quality of my life. So I definitely believe in that principle. And oh. it's so sad because I think it takes, I mean, I think the average, it's like eight to 10 years for somebody to find the right therapist for OCD treatment. Um, but once you find the right therapist, you know, that's a good fit that knows what they're doing. Um, it can change your life. Like you can get your life back. And it's, that's another thing that I love training, you know, working with people that suffer from OCD is that 
I love seeing their lives change. It's awesome. Like, and for me as a therapist, you know, like sometimes, you know, as a therapist, you don't know if you're doing anything, you know, if you're really helping people. But right. I, when I do see uh, people's change behaviors in their lives, you know, or different things or beliefs or whatever it is, and then it's sustained, then I know it, it did work, you know, and it did change their life. So what factors do you think contribute to mental illness? Uh, this is something I've thought about a lot, but I'm, I'm really curious. Do you believe that it's purely genetic or could it be circumstantial? So, I mean, I've seen people that it is genetics, you know, like they haven't had any big traumas or anything in their life, but they've got a strong genetic um, predisposition to anxiety, depression, or even OCD. Um, I think a lot of people that I see though that have that genetic component, you know, a lot of older people were never diagnosed with it. But then when the person learns about OCD, they're like, oh yeah, my uncle has that. My grandpa has that. Like, you know, um, so it definitely can be genetic. And I think even people that have just, a, you know, just general higher levels of anxiety and depression that can also, you know, turn, you know, it can ramp up into something more. Um, with with things that happen in life. So the other thing that really turns on OCD is trauma. Um, and trauma and OCD have actually a lot in common just with the idea that that alarm is going off in our head when it doesn't need to be, right? Because people who have trauma, like will say like, I just got triggered or something, you know, and that's the alarm going off. Um, and then if you think about OCD, OCD, the alarm's going off when it shouldn't. And it's about things that we care about or things that are somehow connected, like just a thin thread to a past trauma. Um, and so I've seen it both ways, but, you know, I really notice it, you know, between like young, young adulthood is when, you know, the majority of people start seeing OCD. Um, but, you know, I've seen it usually, I don't really usually see an onset like later in life. Usually the person has had it most of their life. And then is just now getting the right help for it. Um, but it can definitely come up with kids, right. you know, and I, you know, with meeting with so many people, I do think that some people, you know, with the genetic side, like just come into this world more anxious, like that just sometimes happens, you know? Right. And I think we're all, we're all given yeah. things that we have to work through in life. And sometimes that's what it is for people. I would say, you know, the main thing is genetics and trauma, but I also want to add in that I think learned behaviors can play a part too, you know, um, having, you know, family members that are highly anxious, you know, growing up in a, if you grew up in a household that, you know, parents were highly anxious, then you learn to be highly anxious and that just becomes the norm. I think it's important to know that therapy does take more time than like going to the doctor, like a medical doctor, right? Because usually when we go to a medical doctor, like, let's say if you have a cold or something, you know, they give you some medications, take this for so many days and you'll be cured. Right. And it's just so nice because it's like, OK, got it. Thank right. you very much. You know, but therapy, mental health therapy takes a little bit longer. And I think it's important for people to know that, you know, that just expect it to take a little bit longer. Yeah. And a lot of people have said here on the podcast, actually, which I found really interesting that how important it is to find yes. the right fit with a therapist. And I, when, when people used to say that, I, I didn't really believe in the principle because I thought that sounded kind of snooty, like, oh, I have to find the right fit for me. I have mm -hmm. to find the person that I like the best. 
And I thought, no, you should be able to be happy with any professional in the field. And I think good, good therapists will, will, you know, refer you out if they feel like they can't help you, right? Or if it's not a good fit. And, and you should be able to tell your therapist, hey, I don't think this is a good fit, or I, I don't think you're helping me or whatever it is. And I always tell people, you know, it's good to have like personalities that fit, but also like to be with somebody that's giving you what you need, not necessarily what you want, you know, because you can find what you want anywhere. Right. Um, like if you want valid, if you want reassurance about something, just post about it online, whatever, um, you know, but Facebook, yeah. yeah. Right. Um, but to get what you need, I think is, is so important because I mean, usually people are in therapy for change or because somebody has sent them to go change. Right. Um, right. And it can, I just, it is, it can be uncomfortable, right. It can be uncomfortable, uh, to get what you need, but it's, it's so important and everybody's worth it. And, uh, even just to have a little bit better quality of life, you know, can, can really change things around for people. Oh, I could talk. I seriously could talk about this all day long. I find it so <laughs> fascinating. And um, obviously, because it's something very personal to me, but I, I'm curious, the last question I wanted to ask was, this is a really tricky time during the pandemic. And I imagine that your work is not less, it is more. <laughs> yes, that is true. It is definitely more. I noticed that earlier this year, you know, that it was you know, the people, this is interesting, you know, working with OCD, because obviously, uh, a pandemic, right, that you can't, I mean, something that you can't see, but you could possibly get, and you're hearing, you know, people dying, and just all these different things. I mean, even my 94 year old grandpa's never been through this, right? Right. Um, But it's very interesting, because people that, you know, that I'm seeing, you know, that struggle with OCD, who, you know, have been taught about accepting uncertainty and taking risks and not, you know, doing what your brain is telling you to do. They're actually doing really pretty well. Like, and I was actually really worried, but they're doing so great for the majority of people are doing awesome. However, the people that were on the brink of needing therapy or, or on the brink of having a disorder or, um, you know, struggling, but not that much, they are now struggling. And it's a lot of people. Um, because, you know, just we're getting a lot of different messages about, you know, COVID, um, you know, different measures are taken, you know, and especially even, you know, when people are just now getting into therapy, it's people are getting confused with, okay, well, I'm supposed to follow CDC guidelines, but you're also asking me to take a risk. Right. Um, right. Because OCD, you know, has grabbed onto this, you know, for a lot of people, people are worried now about leaving their homes. Right. They're worried about going to the grocery store. If I go to the grocery store and get something, I have to wipe it down with the Clorox wipe when I get home. And no, you probably don't. Right. But I am encouraging right. people, you know, still still follow CDC guidelines, you know, still follow local leaders, what people are, you know, they're saying and encouraging. Um, but also just wash a little bit faster, <laughs> you know, um, just yeah. take just a little bit of a risk. Um, or maybe wash less time. Yeah. Like if they wash their hands five times in a row, yep. you only need to wash once like really well. Yeah, yeah. Or work down to four, then three, then two, then one. I just, I can't imagine trying to do OCD therapy in this climate 
especially for somebody who does have contamination OCD. What a nightmare, like you just said, because you want to keep yourself and your family safe. And the line is so blurred. It is blurred. Yes. Yeah. And I think even for therapists, knowing what to do can be tricky, too. Like, I've even found myself being like, okay, hold on. I need to just sit and think for a minute about this because I need the person to take a risk, but I also need them to um, stay safe. You know, but I always, you know, I always am able to figure out, you know, an exposure or something that they can do to take a risk. And even, you know, I don't think we should discount imaginal exposures, you know, just thinking about taking the risk can be helpful for our brains. Oh, yeah, that's a that's a good point. Yeah, to start thinking about it and imagining it. Yeah, that is a good way to start. I I think that what I've noticed for myself, because I don't have contamination OCD, but what the pandemic has done is it's forced me into a state of constant uncertainty Yeah, and people who have OCD, all they want is certainty. <laughs> yes. All we, I should say all we want for myself, because I, it's like, I want to be certain about things and there has been nothing certain about what's going on, especially with my job, like not really knowing if we're, if we're going to go to online teaching or not, and, and just not knowing what resources you'll have available to you. I mean, that's terrifying Yeah. for somebody who obsessively worries about those things anyway. Yeah. And it's been really, I've noticed it's been really hard for um, the kiddos that I see just with school yeah. going back and forth. Okay. Now we're online. Now we're in school. Now we're online. Now we're halfway, halfway. Oh, it's a nightmare. It's a total nightmare. I can't even imagine the kids that like breaks my heart even thinking about it because for kids, especially who just don't understand. Oh, that's really rough. Yeah. And so I would just say like for parents who were struggling with that and you know, trying to help support their children, right? Start to teach uncertainty. Like, you know what? I, we don't know what's going to happen. You know, we'll, we'll see what happens. You know, Um, we're going to do, we're going to see what happens together and almost like treat it like an experiment. Let's see what happens, you know? Um, But, but yeah, keep huddling around those you love and, and doing it together. I'm so glad that you said that tip for parents, because I think that there are a lot of parents who probably, don't know what to do. Um, sometimes they may have the OCD gene may have skipped them, but then they have yes. this child <laughs> yes. that they don't even know what to do with. You know, I think sometimes my parents wondered that about me when I was little <laughs> and just completely obsessive over stuff. They were like, we don't really understand what's going on here, yes. you know, but yeah, it's good. It's good for parents to get some, some help and some tips. Do you have any resources that you would recommend to people who are just getting started? trying to um, learn about it, whether it's for a loved one or for themselves? Yes. Okay. So the International OCD Foundation is awesome. I love everything on there. They also have like a Facebook page, Instagram, their Facebook page too. They do lots of live videos um, that you can tune into every week. They're really great. Um, On Instagram, there's a lot of awesome advocates. It's like you, Katie, you're amazing um obsessively obsessively ever after is awesome um there's a lot of great ones and if you you start liking like you know the the people on instagram too that are advocates for OCD, more will pop up for you another thing though that i wanted to throw out just for parents or just anybody who i mean and this this is a good resource for anybody but there is a book that is so good and it's called i hear you And it is all about validation and like what to do instead of giving reassurance to people. And it is by, I think, Michael Sorensen. It has like, it's like a red and white cover. Um, But there's also, so that's a great resource, a great book to go to. 
Also, he has a podcast called the I Hear You podcast. Um, and that's a great resource too. And it's free. Um, but just to learn what to do. And I think for parents, especially if you have a child that has anxiety that is starting to get really big or OCD, going there is a great resource just so you can know what to say. Is there anything else that we haven't covered that you would like to share uh, about you, the work that you do or about OCD? Oh, just, just hope. There's so much hope. Um, anybody, like, it's definitely hard work, like you said. You know, and I mean, changing anything is hard work if you think about it, you know, in life. Um, but there, there is so much hope and you can get back to life, you know, and I, I had it at a time that, you know, it was debilitating. And now, honestly, if I didn't work with OCD, I don't think I would even think about it that much. Like, yeah, I still have it, you know, but I think it's just because I work with OCD. I'm thinking about it a lot, but, you know, it can become something that's not so big in your life. Like for sure, you have to be willing to work hard though and take a risk. And you definitely have to, you know, having that good rapport with your therapist is important because you are having to trust them, you know? And I, I think that's important for, for, you know, therapists to understand, you know, too, that, you know, the trust that I, I always remind myself that the trust that my clients are putting in, you know, in me is huge. This is their life we're talking about here, you know? Um, but there, there's so much hope and you can get back to the life you want to live, even if you're stuck at home right now and your mind is controlling you. And I think, you know, one thing I did want to say that, you know, is interesting about OCD is that logically somebody might know that the threat or whatever they're afraid of is not real. Like sometimes they logically might know, but the kicker with OCD is that it feels true. Right. And we are taught from like babies right like even just like a hunger cue oh i feel hungry so i'm hungry right like that's in our like just how we feel in our body right and so i think this is ingrained in us to act on how we feel so then if your body is giving you a feeling that's not real you know it's hard to be like wait you want me to do something different you know but that's that's what you know exposure response prevention therapy or you know the right treatment uh, for OCD is teaching a person how to do is like, okay, just because I think something doesn't mean it's true. And just because my body's having a certain reaction does not mean it's true.